Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. A few weeks ago, I was interviewed on a podcast called Knowing Animals, which I'll link to in the show notes. The person interviewing me was the philosopher and animal studies scholar Josh Milburn. I had the opportunity to turn the tables and interview Josh here for this podcast. We have a wide-ranging conversation and talk about things like high-tech alternatives to eating animals, the moral implications of eating bivalves, chicken eggs, or roadkill, and when meat alternatives are too close to the original, as well as some other topics besides. Let me read Josh's bio. Josh Milburn is a philosopher who is presently a British Academy postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Sheffield, where he is working on a project entitled Food Justice and Animals, Feeding the World Respectfully. He is a section editor of the journal Politics and Animals and a member of the Vegan Society's Research Advisory Committee. He has published work on food ethics and food politics in, among other places, the Journal of Applied Philosophy, the Journal of Agricultural and Environmental Ethics, and Res Publica. He is presently working on a book about the ethics of feeding animals and a book about what an animal rights respecting food system would look like, which was the focus of our conversation. So now, here's my conversation with Josh Milburn. So how are you doing? Yeah, not bad at all. How are you? You know, uh, I, given the current baseline that all of us share in the world right now, I'm pretty good. But I think it's strong to say I'm doing well, you know what I mean? Yes, no, I, I appreciate that. I've had some interesting conversations in this kind of environment over Zoom or, or over podcasting software where we've talked about how our work and how our lives and how our outlooks have changed in this, uh, in this changed situation. I mean, right now at time of recording... I'm I'm in an interesting crossroads because of the UK situation. Uh, I'm still doing face-to-face teaching. Some of my colleagues aren't. Um, I'm doing kind of blended teaching. So the teaching component of my job's changed. But people's lifestyles are changing as well. People are changing what they're eating. People are changing the amount of food they're growing. So I think it's it's an important time for us as individuals, but also for thinking about broader questions about food. Yeah, I had an earlier uh, conversation with uh, some people from Our Kitchen Table, a food justice organization in the U.S., and uh, Lisa Oliver King, one of the women I was speaking to there, uh, said she was hopeful that maybe this kind of disruption to our daily lives is an opportunity for people to reflect on what they eat. Uh, Certainly, there was a crisis in the United States around meatpacking when, you know, a lot of people who were working in that industry were getting sick. And so to see how bad their working and living conditions are, how little protection they have day to day in lots of ways, and then also the disruption to uh, inexpensive meat might lead people to making sort of uh, more mindful choices and reconsidering some of the things that they've been eating by default. Yes, absolutely. I think here in the UK, we've seen some indication that people have a bit less trust in the food industry as a whole, partly because it was disrupted for a time and, you know, people were struggling to get hold of essentials. Um, People trying to get hold of flour, for example, for a long time, they really, really struggled. Um, And in response, people have started to change their relationship with food. So I know that quite a lot more people are growing vegetables than have ever grown vegetables before. 
Yeah, I mean, it, so it's, you know, <laughs> it's not good, but it's certainly interesting. I often warn my students that uh, I use words like interesting and cool uh, the way they would use words like complicated and sad, but I think <laughs> I can probably publish a paper on it at some point. Striking uh, is so, what I use. That's yeah, a striking that's, a, that's a good word. Yeah, I keep tricking them because I'll say something like, there's a really cool documentary you guys should check out. And they'll come back and they're like, that's a very depressing documentary. It's like, yeah, that's what, what I meant. Uh, uh, so uh, one thing that I'd like to talk to you about today is some of your work on cellular agriculture. But uh, just as sort of a background, can you explain uh, what that term means? And is, is that the preferred term you, you like to use for this uh, suite of technologies or is it something else? Yeah, straight away, that's, that's quite an interesting question because this is a question, question, question about names are absolutely central to this. So I'll say a little about names in a second. Let me just say what we're talking about first. So when I think about cellular agriculture, I think about this whole range of different industries or more precisely potential industries around the growing of food, but also other kinds of products, uh, animal products especially. And the idea is that rather than growing things at the organism level, we can grow things at the cellular level. If we want meat, rather than growing a whole cow, we can start with just a few cells and grow those cells into meat. If we want milk, rather than growing, again, a whole cow for the purposes of, of uh, creating, developing milk, what we can do is we can, at the cellular level, uh, create those proteins that make milk delicious or make milk thicken in a certain way or make milk have the certain culinary purposes that it does. So the idea is it's a form of agriculture. You're growing food, but you're doing it at the cellular level. That might all sound quite abstract. Um, what we're really talking about here, for the most part, is the technology of in vitro meat, um, specifically meat grown. In, uh, in this cellular way. But to be clear, it's not just meat. It's just that the meat is the one that has received the most scholarly attention, but also journalistic attention. So there's a number of books out talking about in vitro meat. And this stuff is not yet available to buy. There are lots of people around the world who have eaten it, but uh, they're people who are connected in some way to the industry uh, or the nascent industry perhaps, uh, but it's not yet available in shops. On the other hand, there are some products of cellular agriculture that are available. So uh, any listeners in the US will be able to order ice cream that's made with milk that has been developed outside of a cow, um, or at least milk proteins developed outside of a cow. Uh, there's a company called Perfect Day uh, based in California that has created that. And you can now order this stuff anywhere uh, in the United States. Now, the naming question is, is crucial. So right now at the European Union, we've got this ongoing debate about so-called meat names for non-meat products. So there are certain individuals within the EU who would like to see the idea of a veggie burger banned, because if it's made of veggies, it's not a burger. Um, and, you know, there's similar kinds of things going on in the United States. There's been similar kinds of things going on uh, in other countries around the world as well. So the names that are being used to refer to this are, are kind of forever changing. So in vitro meat is one term that's being used. Um, clean meat is another. Franken meat, lab grown meat, uh, test tube meat, uh, and so on and so forth. The term cellular agriculture, which I think is a rather nice one, um, 
comes from uh, Isha Datta, who is uh, who works with uh, New Harvest, which is a nonprofit organization that's looking to uh, develop and promote these technologies. Um, and it's a name that's stuck uh, as a name for the technologies as a whole, although the particular names of the particular technologies are still kind of up for contestation among academics, among marketers, among lawyers and politicians. So that's a very live issue in itself. Yeah, you're right. We had sort of a similar like large scale conversation slash lawsuit in the United States around mayonnaise, whether or not mayonnaise had to include eggs. Um, and I think that, you know, some of the literature that I've read on cellular agriculture, maybe as part of that sort of, you know, marketing as a word or just uh, outreach and getting people to know about something. Uh, have tried to include fermentation cellular agriculture under the umbrella of cellular agriculture. So it'd be in vitro meat and milk and eggs, but also fermentation of, you know, bacteria to make uh, alcohol or bread. Yes. Well, the milk I was just talking about, for instance, that's that's uh, made using fermentation technology. So rather than the image of... Um, Rather than the image of, you know, lab coat wearing scientists, actually the production process looks a bit more like craft beer production, you know, which is well established uh, rather than this strange new thing. Uh, and they develop it through fermentation using genetically modified yeast. So I think that's right. There's there's questions about what exactly is included. There's a sense in which, as you say, we've been doing cellular agriculture for many decades. Um and indeed we have. I mean, the, the technology of in vitro meat, for example, has been used with medical applications for a long time. Um, but in vitro meat is a kind of a new application of that old technology to the food space. The technology used with regards to the milk I just talked about, what I've called clean milk, uh, that's much more familiar technology to the food space. So what are some of the the promises, like the hopeful sort of possibilities of this of these new technologies i think that depends on who you ask so from my perspective the really exciting possibility is the possibility that we could this is a phrase i've used a few times that we could have our cow and eat her too right mm. we could respect animals we could give animals all that they are due and i mean i'm an advocate of animal rights so i think they're due an awful lot um but we could still have access to those foods that lots of people find very, very valuable. And I suppose in my own work, I'm trying to take seriously the fact that on the one hand, our food system is not kind to animals. And on the other hand, our food system provides people with food, which is a thing they find deeply important, you know, not just in the sense of fuel for their bodies. You know, we are biological beings who need this stuff, but in the sense of much more fundamental importance in a way of the kind of cultural belonging, personal significance, interpersonal relationships, and so on. So that's the kind of promise that I'm drawn to. Um, another kind of promise is, uh, you know, the elimination of animal suffering. So a lot of animal advocates who are supportive of in vitro meat, and to be clear, not all animal advocates are, and that's definitely something I hope we'll talk about in, in a minute or two. Um, it's got a, they're interested in reducing animal suffering in the short term, for example, using this technology as people switch over from one style of meat to another. That's just going to lead to a little bit less animal harm. But a lot of the people who are 
working in this space are much more excited about the prospect of um, ending the, or at least limiting the environmental impact of the agriculture industry. Uh, because right now, of course, uh, the meat industry, the milk industry, and so forth um, are responsible for an awful lot of carbon dioxide emissions or, or CO2 equivalent emissions, uh, which is contributing seriously to global climate change. They're responsible for pollution and various kind of health impacts. And let's not forget, recording as we are in the middle of a global pandemic, that um, the risk of zoonotic diseases, diseases that shift from humans to animals, is a very real one as well. So I think the hope, the various hopes tie together in the thought of providing people with food, um, good food, enough food, etc., while eliminating most of or all of or many of the problems that we associate with um, animal agriculture. That's the kind of most optimistic vision. Yeah, and that all sounds good. <laughs> but you've done some work, uh, you know, poking some holes in that, or at least looking uh, with some skepticism on some of those most optimistic claims. And as you point out, some animal advocates uh, might not be in favor of these technologies. I mean, why would that be? Because you would imagine certainly there would be some resistance from uh, people who currently benefit from the status quo economic yeah. model, and also maybe just a resistance among buyers who are, you know, concerned or uh, suspicious of new changes in technology. But why might people who don't benefit from the current status quo would like a profound change in what we do with animal uh, consumption now also be against something like this? Yeah, so that's a great question. And that, in many ways, is what first drew me to working on this topic and thinking about this topic. And to be clear, having now worked on it for, for a while, I consider myself a real advocate of cellular agriculture, albeit a cautious advocate, um, you know. I recognize that there are concerns here, and I recognize that we need to be careful when it comes to developing this nascent industry into something that can be can be a kind of force for good, as it were. So, I mean, I'm a philosopher uh, first, uh, kind of animal studies scholar, food, stu food studies scholar as well, but primarily I'm a philosopher. So let me start in a kind of very philosophical way and draw some distinctions. <laughs> I think we can we can distinguish between the sorts of objections that people have to these technologies in a number of ways. So one is there are different objections to different technologies. So in vitro meat, as I was just saying, uses quite different technological means to, to other forms of cellular agriculture. And it might be that we object to some of them and not others. So I think we need to look at these separately. We can also distinguish between kind of production objections or objections to production and objections to consumption. So I think sometimes when vegans and vegetarians think about this sort of thing, they they jump to kind of reasons they object to consuming the, these kinds of products. Whereas when engineers think about these kinds of questions or, or, or technologists of various thought, they think about possible ethical objections at the production level. We also see these kind a kind of distinction between moral objections and political objections. Let me explain what I mean by that because this is something that I spent a lot of time thinking about, because my work on this often comes from a very political perspective. So we can think about the kind of individual moral questions of, you know, should I or you or John Smith or whoever eat this stuff? Or what would be the virtuous or moral way for them to interact with this stuff? 
But then we can also ask the kind of political questions about, say, activist organisations, about support from the state, or even about what I'm working on, food system design. How can we structure our food system um, with this stuff in? Or should we structure our food system with a cellular agricultural element? Um, how big should it be? And so forth. And finally, another quick distinction. We can distinguish between ideal objections or uh, objections in ideal theory and objections in non-ideal theory. And what I mean by that is it's a very different thing to say, I object to this in principle and to say, I don't think this is something we should be supporting right now. So, for example, there might be some animal activist organisations who would get behind in vitro meat and other products like it now, even if their ideal world, as it were, would not include cellular agriculture. Conversely, there might be some animal advocates who would say, yes, the ideal world would include animal agriculture, but I don't want to support, sorry, would include cellular agriculture, but I don't want to support cellular agriculture um, as it exists, right? Because I'm concerned, for example, about um, the role of investors here and about the risk of, um, you know, putting putting money in the hands, in the pockets of capitalists. So, those are some kind of distinctions. And the reason I introduce those is because I think a lot of people have an aversion to cellular agriculture. And often I think they, they're not quite sure why. So I think it can be helpful to hold these sorts of distinctions in mind when we're thinking about why it is that we might object to cellular agriculture. So let me give you, let me give you a few quick examples of the sort of reasons that animal advocates, and especially scholars working on animal ethics, animal rights, animal studies, have raised some worries about uh, cellular agriculture. So when it comes to the production, people point to the fact that, for example, in vitro meat still currently involves some uh, animal ingredients. So anybody who spent a bit of time looking into in vitro meat will have heard of fetal bovine serum which is a rather, a rather horrible thing, um, mm -hmm. which is a byproduct of slaughter. Um, and if you've got a strong stomach, Google it and, and read about how it comes about. Um, the words in it might give you some indications. But this has been used, I mean, this is used in labs all over the world. This is quite a common kind of um, product in biology and cell biology labs. But it's used um, as the growth medium um, in, cell, in, in vitro meat research. Now, all the companies that are working on in vitro meat and all the kind of major players in in vitro meat want to get away from this. It's for, for no other reason, if for no other reason than the fact it would be a marketing disaster if it turned out that their product still relied upon slaughter and still relied upon this particularly gruesome product of slaughter. Yeah, it's not sure who you'd be marketing to at that point. Well, exactly. So, I mean, the first adopters presumably, uh, well, they're not going to be vegans and vegetarians, actually. They're going to be probably flexitarians. They're going to be people who are concerned about meat eating, but who want to be able to continue meat eating uh, without, um, with a bit less of the guilt, as it were. Um, you know, in the long term, other kinds of markets are going to be there. So, yeah, that's a good reason to object to in vitro meat that is developed using this technology. But there's no way, as I say, that uh, when this stuff is on shelves, it's going to be going to be developed using that. Everybody's racing to produce uh, kind of non-animal based alternatives. Um, 
there's presumably always or almost always going to be animal cells involved. Um, we need we need the kind of starting material, as it were, to grow the meat. But I'm inclined to say that this is a question of working out how we can get that in an ethical way, rather than saying that it's not something that we can use at all. So to be clear, I don't think in vitro meat will ever be, quote, suitable for vegans, because it's always going to have this animal input. But a lot of my work has been about trying to work out ways that we can have animal inputs in ways that are respectful to animals. Now, that, that gets a lot of people's backs up, a lot of vegans' backs up anyways. And understandably, it sounds like I'm trying to um, you know, defend industries that vegans want to challenge. I'm a, an advocate and a theorist of animal rights. I certainly don't want to defend contemporary agriculture. But I think there's a big difference between contemporary agriculture and possible future correlations with animals. Let's put it like this. Though I'm an animal rights theorist, I'm not what is called an abolitionist. I don't believe that all relationships with animals have to come to an end. I'm an advocate for a future in which humans continue to have relationships with animals, but in which animals are treated with respect. And in that future, perhaps, um, some animals are going to provide some animal products. Certainly, there's going to be no slaughterhouses, but there might be some animals who occasionally provide a few cells uh, that can then go into the development of in vitro meat, just as there are currently some humans who provide hair for wigs, who provide organs for transplants, and so on and so forth. There are lots of human body parts that uh, are passed around, as it were. So the mere fact that a use, uh, you, you know, something is the product of an animal's body, the product of a rights-bearing being's body, does not in and of itself mean that that thing cannot be used, I would argue. It's just a question of trying to work out a way that this could be sourced responsibly. And there's a whole range of other kinds of worries that people have about the production. So I've seen, I've seen arguments that say that creating a product that resembles an animal's body doesn't respect the animal's autonomy. Again, I'm not quite sure that's true, given that we, we already have an understanding of blood transfusions, for example, is another one. Or we have understandings of prosthetic human body parts which are created to resemble a human body. So again, my point here is not that in vitro meat is just like blood transfusions. My point is simply that it's not entirely clear to me that um, the fact that in vitro meat resembles an animal's body is a reason to, uh, reason to reject it out of hand. It's a reason to introduce protections and to explore this seriously, but it doesn't rule out the possibility. I think, though, many of the most interesting objections to in vitro meat um, come from the fact that it presents meat as food. And this is something that animal studies scholars, animal rights advocates sometimes want to criticise. They want to say, well, what we should be doing is we should be challenging the idea that meat is food. We shouldn't be affirming the idea that meat is food um, because that's just going to leave animals in a kind of subordinate position. And I think there's a couple of ways to answer this. And we need to go back to my distinctions that I was making earlier, including, for example, the distinction between ideal and non-ideal theory. So at a non-ideal level, and um, I published a paper back in um, 2016 in Res Publica called Chewing Over In Vitro Meat, 
which was a pun I thought was quite funny at the time, and in retrospect, <laughs> I, I don't think it was. Um, but anyways, I published an article there, which was very much coming from the non-ideal perspective. And I said something like, sure, it might be bad to reinforce these ideas about meat as food, but that's not an injustice. That's not a wrong on anywhere near the same level as the wrongs that are perpetrated in animal agriculture. And I said that that might be a good trade to make in order to uh, protect animals from the rights violations that they, they encounter in slaughterhouses, you know, mutilation, slaughter, deprivation, confinement, you know, huge levels of suffering and early brutal death. And I thought, sure, it might not be perfect if we support or endorse or push this, this kind of technology or these products that reinforce the idea of um, the idea of meat as food, but it's certainly a lot better than the current situation. So what I'm trying to do there is, I suppose, I'm trying to offer a rights-based way forward that isn't just pure abolition, you know, vegan, vegan education, for example, because I recognise that there are a lot of people who are not keen on going vegan. And what's more, as I was saying earlier, there are a lot of people who value access to this food. You know, it's not just ignorance on their part when they say, oh, I don't want to go vegan. It's not just them being, you know, vicious and wanting pain inflicted upon animals. These people do see a real value in this food. And who am I to tell them that they're wrong? Who am I to say, well, actually, meat isn't important to your life, isn't important to your relationships, isn't important to your cultural expression? So if I could provide a way to allow them to continue those things that they think are important, to continue access to these foods that they think are important, while also not harming animals, all the better. But that leads me to the other side of the coin, this ideal theory. And this is what a lot of my current work is doing. So I'm currently working on a book as part of my uh, postdoctoral project at the University of Sheffield in the UK, um, which says, what's the future of food? And specifically, what's the future of food if animals have rights? And my answer is the quite surprising one, I'd, I'd like to hope, that actually the future of food is not vegan. Even if animals have rights, there might be ways that we could source animal food that are compatible with those rights. Um, and is, that that only, a... is that only for cellular agriculture, or do you have other examples of that as well? Yeah, well, cellular agriculture, I think, is one of the, the big examples. But the other two examples I explore at some length, and to be clear, uh, it's become a kind of personal obsession of mine to kind of collect all these examples. So <laughs> I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about backyard chickens, and I've written a paper about that. I've spent a lot of time thinking about roadkill. I should say one of my favorite papers in the world is called Strict Vegetarianism is Immoral. And I saw that title and I thought, oh, come on, really? And then I read the paper and I thought, very good. That's by Donald Bruckner. But Donald Bruckner defends roadkill as, as a source of food, um, which, you know, is a bit of an alien one to my, uh, to my British ears. But I, I realize in parts of the United States, parts of Canada, parts of Australia, is actually quite widely utilized as a food source. Sure. The, the top level predator uh, for lots of animals in the U.S. since we've gotten rid of wolves is automobiles. I can imagine. I can imagine. And the thought goes, well, why let those bodies rot away when they could be being eaten? Um, but anyways, 
the those two backyard chicken foot especially roadkill they might not be so good for a kind of food system which is what i'm interested in so the other the other examples i explore in this book or this this ongoing project uh number one non-sentient animals so i'll use i'll use a word but then i'll clarify invertebrates that's not all invertebrates that's some invertebrates so let me explain what i mean here a non-sentient animal is an animal who cannot experience pain. They're unthinking and they're unfeeling. And therefore, on uh, many animal rights views, including my own, they're not clearly entitled to rights. Now, there's a, a tricky scientific question about which kinds of animals are non-sentient. But I think right. we can make a very good case that, say, oysters are non-sentient. Mussels and cockles are non-sentient. Can you talk a little more about that before you move on? Because certainly... Um... Those kinds of, you know, fixed shell invertebrates like clams and oysters can tell the difference between something that they like and something that they don't like. So, you know, they'll filter in food and eat it. It seems that that is good. <laughs> you know, they're in favor of that. Uh, whereas, I mean, or maybe it's an automatic process. You know, you tell me what you think. Uh, but also if grit or sand gets in to their valves, then they don't like that. And they, or I mean, you know, and... and Arguably, I'm anthropomorphizing, but they reject those inputs. Um, you know, classically, we think of pearls, but also just, you know, squirting it out. So um, it seems like they do have uh, that they are at some very basic level making choices. I mean, although at that basic level, you know, bacteria, very single celled organisms. Absolutely. And I think uh, you'll see similar kinds of things from plants and, uh, you know, and fungi and algae and so forth as well. And as you say, bacteria. Right. So. That alone isn't an indication that these beings are sentient, uh, unless we want to go down the line of saying that, you know, plants are sentient or, or mushrooms are sentient. And I mean, some people do go down that line. I don't find it particularly plausible. And I think that a lot of recent work on, on uh, plant neurobiology has uh, been misunderstood, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, when people say, well, plants think, plants perceive in, in these kinds of ways. Certainly. And that road does, isn't a promising one for vegans at any rate. No, that's quite right. That's quite right. So, I mean, there are occasionally, I, I've come across vegans who have this kind of line and who see even the consumption of plants as kind of tragic. Um, that seems a rather sad world to live in. Um, that doesn't mean it's not the right world. Um, <laughs> but it, it could be that our world is just not a very good one. Um, but I think the the scientific approach to sentience, it, it's in quite early days. The reality is that we don't have any particular foolproof test to find sentience. It's not so it's not like cracking open a rock and saying, oh, there are crystals there. You know, we, we just don't have the tools to do that. So instead, we find scientists, including uh, scientists working closely with philosophers, interestingly, developing quite kind of varied tests for finding capacities, uh, mental capacities, capacities of, of sentience uh, in different animals. And I think sometimes when, when this topic is brought, we get a kind of, well, how low will you go uh, sort of approach where people say, right, well, let's say all vertebrates are sentient. I think that's a fair claim to make. I mean, if we were having this conversation 20 years ago, people would be saying, oh, well, fish, they're not sentient. I mean, you do still find people saying that, but I don't think there's that many, um, or at least not that many who are, who are kind of versed in the science. When it comes to invertebrates, there seems to be a decent consensus on um, 
cephalopods, octopuses, squids, that sort of thing. There seems to be a developing consensus, so this is contentious, on um, decapod crustaceans, crabs, lobsters, shrimps, prawns, those sort of things. And there's been some interesting work, uh, but not anything like a consensus, on insects. The, the debate rages on on insects. I mean, not many scientists have looked to bivalves because they, they seem to lack many of the kind of first starting points for, uh, for sentience in this kind of research. It's not clear what evolutionary advantage sentience would have for a lot of these animals um, who are sedentary. Uh, not all bivalves are sedentary, but many are. Um, they seem to lack the kind of nervous and uh, brain apparatus for these kinds of things. Um, they don't seem to respond to many of the kind of tests that would be carried out, though I hasten to add that many of these tests haven't really been carried out in a scientific environment because I'm just not sure there are that many scientists who are interested in the question of whether oysters are sentient, probably because, well, first of all, they might fear mockery, but second of all, they, they probably just doubt that there's any chance of it. Um, so I allow that this is an open question, and I suppose the approach I take is to say something like, well, we need to split the world up in some kind of rough way for our, for our moral rules and our political rules and our rules of justice to make sense. And I suggest there are those animals who are almost certainly sentient or probably sentient. And I mean, we're in this category. If we're going to get philosophical, you know, we can, we can raise questions about whether humans are sentient. Classic kind of philosophical zombie questions. Um, Non-human animals that we typically imagine eating, uh, pigs, cows, chickens, goats, sheep, camels, etc., these animals are almost certainly sentient. Fish are almost certainly sentient. And I mean, I'm using almost in the kind of broader sense here, that they're pretty certainly sentient. Um, and then, yeah, as I say, you can kind of move further down. So at some point, you're going to have a line where you're going to say, right, we're not so sure anymore. Precisely where we draw that line is going to vary. I personally am pretty sure, based on my reading, that uh, decapod crustaceans are sentient. I'm not confident saying I'm pretty sure that insects are sentient. So then you've got that kind of middle ground where we're just not sure. Difficult. I'll get back to them in a second. And then we've got that line where we say, look, we're pretty certain these beings are not sentient. And I would include not just plants and mushrooms in that category, plants and fungi, but also some animals like oysters are my go-to example. Jellyfish are another one. Just not sure I can see any reason to believe that jellyfish are sentient. Um, and you might think, oh, well, we don't eat jellyfish, but but actually we do. Um, they're just not that common as food in, in the US or UK, say, but they're eaten in parts of East Asia, for example. Um, so those ones that are below the line, just as I don't see there being any major worries about the consuming of plants in and of themselves, of course, we can raise all kinds of questions about farming methods and so forth, and you know, worker rights and these kinds of things that I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with. But for the sake of the plants themselves, not obvious that there's any concerns. But I would also put, say, oysters in that category, uh, at least for the purposes of food system design. And again, I draw back to those, those distinctions between moral, political, ideal, non-ideal. So I don't eat these beings, and I think there might be interesting moral reasons not to. Um, but nonetheless, I think they could be a part of a food system.
Um, yeah. Well, let me, so let's think about that distinction a little bit. So, I mean, you're certainly, uh, a point you made earlier uh, is right that um, eating meat seems to be a high priority among uh, a large number of people. And when I say that, I think most of our imagination goes to that one uncle of yours <laughs> that you've had conversations with. But what I actually mean is that in developing world contexts, um, as soon as people have more money to spend on food than bare subsistence, uh, it seems like uh, you know the, the so-called second euro is spent, because uh, most of research is done by people who use euros, uh, is spent on meat uh, because it is seen as a status symbol, uh, because it is seen as culturally important, you know, for weddings and funerals and other kinds of events like that. And so, uh, you know, both in terms of feasibility and some justice concerns, you might not want to have people from quite wealthy countries coming into countries that are poor because of historical economic policies that we have visited upon them, and then saying, okay, and now also you don't get to eat meat anymore because we've decided that it's bad. Um, but from the moral standpoint, you know, so let's, uh, a thing that I often say uh, is that after I stopped eating meat, very quickly for me, uh, meat became not food. Like it got moved into a category in my mind as not being food, as you were talking about earlier. And, you know, like people will say, oh, don't you miss eating this or that? And the answer truly is that I don't. I mean, it's possible I have false consciousness. I'm deluding myself. Uh, but I really feel like I don't. Um, it doesn't feel appetizing. Uh, and so when people have these examples of, you know, I've eaten at, uh, in fact, at a restaurant uh, I ate at in China, um, and then another one in New York, in uh, a Chinese restaurant in New York, that have very, very accurate reproductions of mm. meat from non-meat proteins. They've been at it a long time as a culture. Uh, you know, they, can, they can get fine, very good, especially for ham. And I found in both times that I tried it, that the ham was very unappetizing to me because it tasted too real. It had crossed into some weird space where I didn't want to eat it, even though I knew that it was made from uh, probably Satan, some sort of, you know, plant protein. Um, you know, and these, the, the way that I explain that to people who don't share that intuition is if you ate something that tasted exactly like eating a kitten and looked like it, or exactly like eating a human child, not wanting to do that doesn't seem bad, right, as a moral failing. Um, likewise, for backyard chickens, as you were referencing, if I had some chickens that lived in my backyard, uh, they hung out, they had a good life, I saw to it that they had really good lives, I had personal relationships with them, they had relationships with each other and with me, everything was great. And they occasionally laid eggs, which you can't leave around if there isn't a rooster because they'll attract predators like raccoons in the US. Um, surely getting rid of them, uh, bringing them in here, throwing them away is an option. Eating them would also be an option. That's true. Um, but again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't personally, I wouldn't want to. And I can't make a strong moral argument in favor of that, and certainly not a political argument in favor of that. But it does seem that that separation um, is triggered by this cellular agriculture sort of issue. Um, and so is it just that people like me are, will probably never adopt cellular agriculture, but that's just us being backward? Or is there like, should I try it? You know, if there's if there is uh, if it becomes an option, is there a reason, an active reason to try it? Or is it just a way of sort of uh, ameliorating people's desire for meat of sort of mollifying people who don't want to become vegan? Great. Yeah, th these are exactly the questions I'm interested in. So just a quick 
point. Um, my understanding is that actually feeding eggs back to chickens is, is good for the chickens. Oh, perfect. Well, I've solved that. I've solved that nutrition. then for my non-existent pets. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Good. So that's that's a kind of easy response to some of my arguments about exactly what you just said. Well, feed them back to the chickens. Um, I'll, I'll not offer a response to that because that wasn't really your question. So I guess let me draw another distinction <laughs> to, to be the real philosopher. Um, we can identify these kinds of aversions that you're talking about, which I think are real aversions. And I think lots of vegans and vegetarians who are listening to this will, will know exactly what you're talking about. Um, some of them are just kind of purely aesthetic aversions. So when, when I talk to people about roadkill, often the response, and I think this is probably my response, is something like, look, there's not anything all that wrong with doing this. Asterix. I think there maybe are some interesting moral arguments about eating roadkill, but that's not that's not what I want to talk about right now. But what a lot of people say is, I don't think there's anything wrong with this, but I don't really want it. Um, and that's fine. You know, that's kind of an aesthetic objection to this food. Equally, I don't really like melon, you know. Um, so you might think that there's there's what's going on there is just a kind of taste thing. I mean, you talk about aesthetics of taste, and that's a, that's a really interesting area of philosophy of food. But then I think there might be something more going on in that people think there is some kind of moral problem here. Certainly, I know lots of vegans and vegetarians feel quite guilty when they bite into something that just feels a little bit too real. Um, and I think that's that will be the reaction. Well, for example, that's been the reaction of a lot of people with these Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers. Um, and leaving aside questions about the production and development of these foods, which I know create real, real ethical quandaries. Um, these are the sorts of foods that could be objected to on exactly the same sort of grounds that people would object to in vitro meat uh, or the consumption of, of um, say, um, non-sentient animals. So it might be Again, one of my distinctions was about the ethics of production versus ethics of consumption. It might be that there are good ethical reasons not to consume these things. So here's a really straightforward, non-ideal example. Um, this argument might work, it might not, but it's, it's at least an interesting argument. I am an active scholar of animal rights. I'm an active animal advocate. And, you know, my colleagues and my friends know this about me. Yet if they see me eating something that looks and smells and tastes like meat, they might quite reasonably go, what's going on here? If they see me eating eggs, even if they don't know precisely where those eggs are from, they might go, wait a second, are eggs okay? If they see me eating oysters, they might say, oh, he's not that serious about all this. It's, you know, it might be nicer getting interviewed on inter interesting podcasts, but he's not actually walking the walk. Um, so there's a chance that eating these, what we might call unusual animal products or very close replicas uh, or, or analogs of animal products, we might think that that sends mixed messages and that that makes for really bad activism, for example. And that, I think there's potentially mileage in that. We can ask interesting questions about, you know, how much effect do we really have on those around us? How much attention are they really paying to us? You know, could these could these be useful opportunities to start conversations and so on? But what's interesting about that kind of mixed message objection is that it doesn't seem to bear on the more ideal theorizing. So it's not a particularly good reason, for example, to oppose the inclusion of cellular agriculture in 
the food system of, say, 50 years hence, when, you know, there's an international bill of animal rights and, uh, you know, the, all the farms have closed and all the rest of it, the, the kind of the vegan dream. Um, the mixed messages objection might be a good objection to engaging in certain kinds of eating today, but it's not clear that it would be for food system design, because how can you send a mixed message when there isn't any of the, dare I say, bad meat around, the meat that has been uh, created by the violation of animal rights? If instead the only meat that's around is um, meat that's been produced in ways that are just that respect animal rights, whether that's because it's from plants or it's the product of cellular agriculture or what have you, there's no chance of sending mixed messages. So to use a slightly silly sounding, but I think important analogy or comparison, you know, if I'm walking around London eating a beef burger, there's not any chance that I'm going to send mixed messages and say that it's okay to eat elephants because there's no elephant meat out there. No one will reasonably look at me and go, oh gosh, that guy's eating elephant, it must be all right to eat elephant. Equally, if we are in a state where animal rights are protected, and here, of course, I'm speaking with my ideal hat on, um, then there's no chance of sending a mixed message by eating a hyper-realistic plant-based burger or by eating um, you know, a burger made through cellular agriculture means. So... I think those mixed messages kind of objections are the sort of thing, and they're not the only thing, but they're the sort of thing that might give us a good moral reason to feel a bit iffy about exactly what you're just talking about, a bit iffy about eating eggs or a bit iffy about um, supporting cellular agriculture or eating those highly realistic uh, products. But we need to be clear about not only whether that argument actually holds up, um, and I, I, just, I haven't suggested, but I've pointed towards reasons why we might question that, but also um, to be clear about what the scope of that argument is. So I'm inclined to think that, well, so I don't eat those kind of things myself. I'm, I'm a fairly strict vegan in my personal life. Um, but I don't think, and, and that's the sort of reason that I might point towards if I'm trying to think through the moral reasons for keeping to my own strict veganism. Um, but I don't think that those kind of reasons apply when it comes to food system design. And to be quite clear, I am certainly not saying that in the animal rights respecting state, we should all eat cellular agriculture, we should all eat in vitro meat, say. Um, I am perfectly open to the idea that uh, there are going to be lots of vegans in the, uh, the animal rights respecting state. In some ways, I hope there would be. It's just that I recognise that for some people, they would much prefer to have access to these foods in a way, uh, well, we'll prefer to have access to these foods. And so it is incumbent upon me not to say to them, oh, you can't have that thing, it's naughty. Uh, it's incumbent on me as an animal rights scholar to say, well, how can we respect animal rights while also allowing people access to this, these kinds of foods? How can we, can we have it both ways? Now, if, it, if it's the case that we can't have it both ways, then yes. I think we should be we should be talking about you know enforced veganism, and that's a scary sounding phrase, right? But if animals have <laughs> rights and there's no way that people could source animal foods without violating those rights, then yes, I think we are going to have to say, well, we all have to be vegans then, you know, as a legal matter, because there's no way that you can access that food in a way that respects animal rights. Much better, I would think, is if we say yes. There can be animal-based foods, but we need to really, really, really think about how we're getting hold of them 
and cellular agriculture is, as I say, one of the ways that we can talk about. And I think it's the most exciting and most promising. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's quite interesting. I think that, uh, you know, from the moral standpoint, um, taking it seriously as a signal or as uh, messaging or even, you know, in whether, whether it's messaging to yourself or to other people is valuable. Um, you know, there's another sort of conversation that's bringing up or alluding to about taboo. So, you know, it is the case that humans uh, will construct fairly fixed ideas in their head about what is not to be eaten. Uh, it seems like that, I mean, not to be an evolutionary psychologist, but it seems like there might be good evolutionary reasons for that to be the case. Um, as well as, you know, police and culture, we are the kind of people who eat this and we are the kind of people who don't eat this, you know, using them as shibboleths. Um, and whether or not we are able to have a fine-tuned enough visceral reaction uh, to allowing in vitro meat, but not allowing uh, meat that you got from slaughtering an animal is an, is an interesting question. If so, then, that, then, it would be, then it would be a good line to draw. Um, if not, that might be part of the concern. But to go back to your sort of political uh, worries or work, um, I'm wondering, do you think we'd be able to get to a situation of a just food system? Well, sort of two questions. One, do you think we'd be able to have a just food system that incorporates um, in vitro meat or not from the perspective of animals, but is it the case that that is going to always be sort of a high tech, high input, uh, kind of labor intensive or resource intensive technology that's a luxury for people who can afford it and makes, you know, maybe requires large profitable companies in order to pursue something like that because it's just sort of a, an extra bonus for people who have a lot of uh, extra resources to spend on those sorts of things? Or could it actually be something that could exist um, available to everyone or available uh, you know, to people in those developing worlds for that second euro to spend? And then sort of a related question is, could we get to a just food system by promoting the kind of research uh, that's happening now? Because what's happening now, presumably, is public-private partnerships where uh, the federal governments uh, are supporting research by private companies will use it to make profitable products and increase their market share. So you might think that uh, supporting in vitro meat promotes us into a path towards maintaining an unjust food system. Right. These, yeah, these are massive questions and these are, these are crucially important questions. So let me address the first one first, this question of could we, could we have this food system but paying attention to the kind of non-animal concerns. So what I've talked about so far are definitely the sort of objections that come from vegans and animal advocates. And you might think when push comes to shove, it doesn't really matter what vegans and vegetarians and animal advocates think about this stuff. The, you know, the chance of a political kind of buy-in is going to come from the response from a kind of broader demographic. Um, and of course, the... Uh, existing political structures are concerned about these broader demographics. So it's not just about buy-in, it's about making sure that the, these, these, um, these systems would be fair to these individuals. And that is certainly something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. So I've been thinking a great deal, for example, about rural jobs. So there's a very straightforward sense that you'd imagine that, you know, if over the next 10 years or next 20 years or what have you, we see a widespread shift from 
quote-unquote traditional animal agriculture, which, you know, isn't exactly traditional, but the kind of animal agriculture that's taking place right now towards cellular agriculture, we might imagine there's going to be a huge shift in um, jobs from the kind of rural communities and rural jobs of farming to kind of urban factory-style jobs, some highly skilled jobs as well, of course, the jobs of scientists. And it's, you know, it's mostly, well, it's, in fact, it's entirely kind of highly skilled scientists who are currently working in this field. Um, and that might be a problem. And that might be a problem, for example, if we, if we take seriously the idea of agrarian values, if we take seriously the idea that lots of individuals do value access to uh, the sort of relationships that exist on farms, do value access to the products of farms, right? Um, so I take that kind of objection quite seriously because at the at kind of foundation, I, I'm a liberal, uh, as may have become clear from the way I talked about the value that people place in food. I don't think it's my place to tell people what their values are. And I think that the fact that some people value a certain thing is a good reason to try and preserve it. So I've been thinking about, for example, the possibility of a kind of partnership between animal farmers and the in vitro meat industry, rather than thinking about it in terms of an opposition. Um, and this would be, again, this is about kind of, well, we could think about this in non-ideal terms, but I'm thinking about it right now in terms of, of, of kind of the future. So, for example, we seem to need we seem to need and will continue to need access to animal cells, as I was talking about before. And that, from an animal advocacy perspective, might seem like a good reason to object to in vitro meat. But from these other kinds of perspectives that we might think about, actually, it could be a reason to uh, be hopeful about in vitro meat. Could it allow the possibility for farmers to go back to the kind of perhaps semi-mythic, but at least evocative and powerful image of the farmer who is the custodian over a small number of animals who live great lives, right? If we don't need to raise many, many, many animals, we don't need shed after shed crammed full of pigs or shed after shed crammed full of chickens. We can have this kind of bucolic image of the farmer looking after the land, looking after animals, relating to the land, relating to animals, and these animals are not sent to slaughter. Instead, they are um, protected by rights and occasionally uh, have some cells taken from them to be made into in vitro meat or to be used in other forms of cellular agriculture, for example. Uh, you know, just off the top of my head, um, we might want to keep sheep in order to take cells to grow into wool. Now, I'm not claiming that, that I've just made that technology up, right? But I know that there are... Um, there is potential in cellular agriculture for, for developing wool, including, you know, lanolin and, and other kinds of products of wool. So this could be a way that we could keep the best bits of animal farming while removing all the nasty bits. And that would be better for not just animals, but better for farmers, potentially. It would allow them to uh, get back to the sort of work that when you ask them, they want to be doing. Um, and that, that just ties quite neatly, just to quickly add, to another direction of my research where I'm thinking about the possibility of animal-based foods in an animal rights-respecting state. Um, the idea, borrowed from some re recent literature, um, of animal worker rights. 
So treating animals not just as kind of beings who are entitled to rights as animals, but treating some animals as workers who are entitled to rights as workers. So the animals on this, these farms could be protected by these workers' rights. They could be, for example, entitled to retirement. They could have something like union representation. They could even have something like a wage. Now, working out the details of this is, of course, going to be tricky. And in many ways, this is the most kind of speculative part of my wider project. Um, but if we are open to the idea of animal worker rights in the case of animals kept on farms for the purposes of cell acquisition for cellular agriculture, maybe, just maybe, we could imagine um, the possibility of egg farms or even of dairy farms or of wool farms right? We could imagine that these animals could be kept in a way that is consistent, not just with their basic rights, you know, their right not to be killed, their right not to have suffering inflicted upon them, and all the rest of it, but also with their rights as workers. So I am, if you like, an advocate of a certain kind of farming, a certain kind of animal farming. It's just that the farming I'm imagining has nothing at all to do with farming as it's currently practiced. That leads me, quite conveniently, I think, to my second, to your second question about how we get there. And here's a kind of cop-out answer, which is not fully satisfying at all. For the purposes of this book project, I'm doing ideal theory. And in order to have the story of how we get there, we need non-ideal theory. So we need a slightly different kind of work. Now, that is a cop-out. That's a major cop-out. But I've certainly got some thoughts. And I think that with cellular agriculture, uh, my thoughts are perhaps most developed. I think that animal advocacy organisations should get behind cellular agriculture. But I'd also like to see governments get behind it a little bit more than they perhaps are doing, right? And the reality is that right now, governments... Um, certainly in, in Western Europe and North America, prop up animal agriculture to a huge degree, you know, enormous subsidies and a lot of looking the other way when it comes to, um, you know, law breaking by, the, by these groups or even law writing, you know, loopholes are written in. And this isn't just as concerns animal welfare. This is as concerns, um, for example, uh, environmental protections. So, you know, were it the case that governments made animal agriculture pay its fair cost and stop subsidising it so much with taxpayers' money, um, it could be that they would have a lot more money to uh, push towards the development of these kinds of technologies. And it would potentially make these other kinds of products much more attractive, right? So you mentioned this image of the cellular agriculture as only for the rich, and that's a striking kind of thought, because often the proposal is put the other way. The thought is that it will create a two-tiered system where the poor eat uh, the products of cellular agriculture, while the rich continue to have access to better meat, which comes from animals. Now, there's an interesting thought there that this better meat comes from animals. That, that's, that's an assumption that seems to be based on very little. Um, but I think it could go both ways. In all likelihood, the very first launch of in vitro meat... Um, which you know could be imminent, but we've been saying that for a few years now, it's going to be the high-end market. It's going to be a kind of proof of concept. But for in vitro meat to have the kind of potential that I hold, we do need to see it. Um, 
we do need to see the price drop and we do need to see um, it starting to replace cheap meat, right? The victory, I guess, for cellular agriculture will come when McDonald's starts using it, right? Because it's going to be cheaper for McDonald's to use in vitro meat than it is for them to use beef. Or, or sorry, let me clarify. They'd still be using beef. They'd just be using beef grown in a different way. It's going to be cheaper for them to use in vitro meat than it is for them to use cows to produce their beef. And one of the strangest pieces of cellular agriculture news of the last year is the news that, wait for it, KFC Russia is investing in in vitro meat. It's a kind of, wow. <laughs> you know, if KFC is excited about the prospect here, we, we are a step closer to not just the kind of ideal future that I'm imagining, park that for a second, we're a step closer to this non-ideal vision that I've defended, which is using in vitro meat as a tool, not a panacea, a tool to combat actually existing harms and injustices faced by animals right now. And, you know, I'd like to hope that in, say, you know, 10 years, we're going to see this in all shops, in all restaurants. It's going to become the default um, in time. Um, and that's going to be an uphill battle. But I think that animal advocates do have a part to play here. And I think that politics has a big part to play. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. Um, if you can make economic arguments uh, to large corporations, I mean, that moves the needle a huge amount in terms of the number of animals that are being slaughtered or exploited in other ways for various animal products. You know, one purchasing decision by McDonald's can have massive implications for how animals are raised uh, for, you know, rainforest destruction in Brazil. That's already been shown to be true. And so you can imagine that that could have a huge leverage point there. And that's the other thing. I mean, I, I love your point about uh, our, subsid our subsidies that we give as public institutions, governments, to uh, agriculture as it is now. So it isn't the case that there's some sort of very uh, sustainable, very, you know, sustainable, not in the sense of like good, but very resilient uh, agricultural system that would need to be combated. But that agriculture now is being created by public choice, by public inputs of money, of subsidies, of laws, as you pointed out. Um, and so we're already implicated in that food system. And so where we decide to have our public monies and other resources devoted, uh, you know, is, is a real question. So it's not, it's not that we're advocating intervening in a system that's working on its own, Will we be willing to do that? Is that we're already in a system? We're already putting forward a particular vision of how a food system ought to be, and we, presumably, assuming we live in democratically responsive country, which maybe is an open question, uh, but <laughs> assuming that that's true, <laughs> if not, we've we, let's deal with that. And then once we've dealt with that, then uh, you know we can decide to do something else and build a different kind of food system. Oh, 100%. so yeah, yeah. Sorry. So. Uh, Something I like to do with all of my guests is uh, have them bring some kind of recipe to share with the audience. And the reason for that is that I think it's a good way to get to know someone, to see what kind of foods they prioritize or think about or enjoy. Um, and also, there's, there's a kind of um, shared relationship that is established over food. What would be ideal is if you could sit down 
and eat at each person's table who listens to this podcast. That might be might require some travel uh, funds from your university. We can look into that. Uh, but in lieu of that, I think that sharing a recipe is sort of the next best thing as we participate uh, in that food, you know, jointly but separately. So what recipe have you brought uh, to talk about today? So I've picked up one of my many vegan cookbooks, which I have on my shelf, which is uh, Vegan Christmas uh, by Gaz Orkley, who is a Welsh um, vegan chef and food writer. And in this book, um, he has the recipe for sweet cranberry glazed barbecue ribs, and he puts ribs in scare quotes. So it's sweet cranberry glazed barbecue ribs. Um, but he spells ribs as ribs, uh, which, you know, is an interesting point. There's definitely a conversation to be had someday about the different naming conventions that vegans uh, try to put in to, to make it seem like meat, but not too much like meat. Yes. And I think this is one of the reasons, well, and this like meat, but not too much like meat, which is something, of course, we've talked about on this podcast, is exactly why I was drawn to this recipe to share. So it's one I've made a couple of times. Um, you know, it's, not, it's certainly not one I make every week. Um, hopefully I'll make it again this year for Christmas uh, because it's got the cranberry. It's got a kind of Christmassy, uh, Christmassy flavor to it. Um, and it's it's an impressive lump of a thing. <laughs> it's, um, you know, it looks it looks impressive. It's a centerpiece, if you like. But also it has a look of ribs about it. So specifically you have to, or the recipe calls for you to use a griddle pan which of course leaves those um, those kind of telltale sear marks. And it's got a very kind of meaty texture um, and it's, it's absolutely delicious. Um, but the reason I thought it was an interesting one to share is precisely because it's meaty, right? And I'm very interested in the fact that some vegan cookbooks you pick up, um, especially in this recent kind of clean eating um, craze, which I'm not a fan of for a number of reasons, um, but in any case, they're very kind of light and salady, uh, which doesn't particularly suit me as a person, but also gives a kind of a, a particular vision of veganism and quite a stereotypical uh, vision of veganism. Um, so, and I mean, some vegans like that and that's fine. I'm not trying to tell people how to eat. Oh, oh, sure. Well, in that case, I'm not. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I'm from California originally. And when you would tell people there that you're vegetarian or vegan, the most common response is, oh, wow, that's so healthy. Like, yeah. Not really. Not if you've ever met me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not necessarily. Exactly. I mean, I like beer. I like chocolate. You know, there's no there's no reason to think that just because uh, someone is a vegan, they, they have a very healthy lifestyle. Um, but and I don't know how healthy this particular dish is, probably not very. Um, but it's a recognizably meaty dish. And, you know, I remember um, a good friend of mine who's a a philosopher who works on on animal issues. I was talking to him one time about food, and he said, "The thing is, I just like meat." And this guy is a super committed vegan. There is no way on earth he would eat, um, you know, a piece of a dead animal. But nonetheless, he was prepared to say he liked meat. And I think a lot of vegans are kind of in this camp, um, and sometimes are a little bit embarrassed to admit it. <laughs> and they would like to have access to these kinds of foods. And of course, let me go back to my ideal, non-ideal. I think that it can be quite important for the purposes of activism and the purposes of converting people who are potentially drawn to veganism, who are potentially concerned about the environmental impact or the, the animal welfare impact of animal agriculture, but maybe don't buy into the full animal rights view, to say, look, 
you like that food, you've still got access to it. And, you know, I'm super excited. I don't know how it is where you are, but in the UK in the last, honestly, just the last couple of years, it has got so much better in supermarkets or what you would call grocery stores for vegan food. You know, it's not just kind of one token item or worse, no items whatsoever. You know, we've got major supermarkets now that have whole vegan aisles um, and we've and all the supermarkets have, you know, a vegan shelf and a vegan fridge um, and vegan ranges. And it's just so exciting. Yeah. Even down here in, you know, not large cities in southmost Texas, uh, there's just been an explosion of items, which on the one hand is makes my life a lot easier. So I appreciate it. Uh, of course, when Walmart starts carrying a lot of anything, I start to suspect that there might be some Maybe I'm not pushing hard enough. If Walmart can agree with me, I'm not being, I'm not making a, I'm not, I'm not being a strong enough challenge to the system as it is. But yeah, I was in. Uh, my wife and I were in England for our honeymoon a little over ten years ago, and uh, we we got a little hummused out uh, after going to grocery stores. So it's good to hear that you that you've also gotten some more options there. Well, that's exactly it. So it's not just the fact that they're more options it's the fact that they're not all quinoa and kale <laughs> much as i like quinoa well not so much i definitely like kale um mm -hmm. but they are mock chicken or they are gyozas or they are spring rolls you know any kind of cuisine which is popular in the uk you'll find uh, vegan versions but not just vegan bits of the cuisine but mock versions and I use that word in scare quotes, you know, so you'll be able to get the meaty bits of any cuisine, but made with plants. Um, and that, I think, is is exciting. And that speaks to my kind of vision of a kind of activism that says, look, this is accessible to you, even if you love ribs or steak or chicken. But also my vision of a kind of future, which says, look, you can come on board with this vision of future, because if you genuinely value these things, We'll make a space for it as best as we can. We will we'll do our best to allow the room for eating these products. It's just we want you to get them, to have them in a way that is consistent with animal rights. So rather than, rather than being a kind of welfareist future that says, all right, we'll reach a compromise between, uh, you know, the vision of the animal rights theorist and the vision of the person who wants to eat meat, it's a purely rights vision. It says animals have rights, full stop. But it says, you know, next paragraph, we might be able to find some ways that these rights could be compatible with your vision of a good life. Yeah, I, so I'm excited to try the recipe. Um, I think that telling people that what we ought to pursue is a broadly open political strategy that brings in many people, people with many different kinds of private commitments to work on public change um, is an idea that isn't suited for social media or the modern world. So uh, good luck with that. <laughs> I think that um, you know we've decided as a culture, at least on Twitter and Facebook, that your internal uh, value commitments are the only thing you should ever talk about, and all moral questions should be fought about before anybody ever thinks about cooperating. But you know, hey, maybe uh, <laughs> maybe we can make a change and actually fight for systemic changes. Um, so. I'd like to thank you for appearing on the podcast and invite you when your very successful book uh, is finished and finds a publisher to come back and talk about it. Well, thanks. That'd be fantastic. It's been, it's been great fun. We've covered a lot of ground <laughs> um, and I've, I've been quite animated. You can't see me, of course, but I'm feeling exhausted now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Thanks.
That was my conversation with Josh Milburn. Links are in the show notes, including a link to the other half of our conversation on the podcast Knowing Animals. If you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd appreciate it. It helps people find the show. Follow us on Twitter at foodthoughtpod. And if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed or some other feedback, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 